0: Always so seems like a mass exodus. <laughs> uh, you have to wait for the multitude to leave and the tremors to settle down. Uh, let's go to the Father in prayer. Lord, we come before you and we thank you for loving us. Thank you for, you. Thank you for your word that we have the opportunity to study. We have the opportunity to to read, and we have the opportunity to know you better and to love you deeper as a result of our study. Father, I thank you in advance for the Holy Spirit who leads us into the truth of your word. Thank you for loving us. It's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. Uh, Tonight, we're looking in the minor prophet of Zechariah. About a month ago, maybe five weeks ago, Scott Sutton called and he said, Hey, Morris, what did your schedule look like? Maybe the end of October, the first part of November. Would you be interested in teaching Zechariah? And I was like, sure, I'd love to. Um, and then I started reading um, Mark Devers' book, his Bible survey book, and I read where he said that in his study of preparing to preach through Zechariah, that it was the most difficult of the minor prophets that he had ever tackled. And he quoted five or six other biblical scholars who said the same thing. So I picked up my phone and I copied that little passage and I texted that to Scott. I said, thanks a lot, Scott. And he went, he, 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 you know, whether he knew it or not, I don't know. And, you know, it, I didn't feel put upon by any means. I just love, I love teaching. But I tell you what, after Sunday morning, I was feeling a whole lot better about teaching through Zechariah than Greg Fields having preached through Psalm 88. Man, what a study. Um, but then I looked at that and I thought, you know, that's a... Greg, that was, that was a perfect springboard. Psalm 88 was a perfect springboard into Zechariah. You know, because, and as you, in fact, as you were teaching Sunday, as you were preaching Sunday morning, I was reordering my study for tonight, thinking, I've got to put this, I've got to do this, I've got to do this, i got to do this. So it changed everything, so that's not a problem. Thanks. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, but in, you know, Psalm 88, you know, speaking of the, the people who go through trauma and the loss that they feel and the despair and the despondency that comes from that, that's where the people in the time of Zechariah were. They were there. So it, again, it was a perfect springboard. Um, now, Zechariah is the longest of the minor prophets with 14 chapters. But you know, in reality, as I looked back over the history that I've, I've taught you know, on Wednesday nights, uh, this is really probably the most reasonable request that Scott Sutton has ever made of me um, because I taught through Deuteronomy in two weeks. I talked through, talk through Job in two weeks. So Zechariah, 14 chapters, maybe a little easier? No, <laughs> not at all. But it's, it, it's a great book. Uh, and I've enjoyed this. I hope you're going to enjoy this study over the next two weeks. Now, I, I thought about several approaches to, to deal with this book. Deborah actually used the, the title, God Gives Second Chances. Uh, through, through the study of Zechariah. And I thought, you know, I'm not sure I agree with that. Endeavor went on to explain perfectly, uh, I thought, um, citing God's sovereignty and basically saying, and I paraphrase, that since God is sovereign, because God is sovereign, he is never surprised by our choices. He's never surprised by what we do. He's never surprised by things that come against us. He knows all of that. And in his sovereignty, the outcome of his kingdom work is always exactly what he intended it to be. So in reality, what may seem like a second chance to us is simply God's working in his sovereignty through all of those things. And he orchestrates that. How does he do that? I don't have a clue. I wish I could tell you, but I can't. You know, God just reveals that that's what he does. So it still seems like a second chance and it kind of sounds like God's given his people a second chance through the revelation, through um, the, 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 the preaching, the teaching, the word that he gives through Zechariah. So we're going to kind of go that, di- that direction. Um, now, first of all, we want to set the context for this prophetic writing from God through Zechariah. Zechariah was called out and God spoke to him only two months after God spoke through Haggai. Did you recall the last, not last week, but two weeks before that, as Scott taught through Haggai? And we'll go back to Haggai 1.1. I, I wanna set the time here. And it starts off in Haggai 1 1 saying, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month. Okay, so that sets exactly the timeline. Now, flip over a page or two, depending on what, what Bible you're holding. Zechariah 1.1 1, 1 says, in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius. So it's just two months later. So, you know, as I, I saw that, I thought, well, either God was so pleased with his people's response to Haggai that he said, you know what? I'm going to give you all another word through another man. Or... He decided they really need to hear from somebody else because maybe they didn't listen to Haggai in the first place. They needed an additional messenger. All right, so let's let's look at who is the penman. Again, setting a little bit of context here. The penman for the word delivered through the Lord is it's Zechariah was a priest, the son of Barekai, and the son of the grandson of Edo. He was a member of the prominent priestly family who returned from Babylon with Zerubbabel in about 538 B.C. Now, Edo is named in Nehemiah 12.4. If you want to go and look that up and and see that context, I'd encourage you to do that. I don't have time to do all that tonight, so I'm just going to give you that reference. So y'all can mark that down and go back and read and see where Edo actually comes in, um, in with Zerubbabel. Okay. Um, There are many points of contact between Haggai and Zechariah. Both contain very precise date formulas for their oracles, and they address the need to rebuild the temple. That's part of the same theme that we see in both of these prophetic writings. Um, they were also given assurances and reassurances that God will bless his people for their faithfulness. But, like all the other minor prophets that we've seen, you know again it's the the same pattern of you know God's people they sin, God sends a messenger, there's consequences, and then there's a remnant, and God promises that that rebuilding. Uh, we see the same thing in, in Zechariah as well tonight. Um, some additional notes of of, of, of Zechariah, the first eight chapters of Zechariah are much like the oracles in Haggai. And, but the latter chapters, verse, uh, chapters 9 through 14, have a different content and a different style. And so a lot of scholars believe that the last five chapters of Zechariah were, were written in later times, maybe even into the fourth century. Um, when, when the people of God were in a different place and needing a different kind of word. Uh, some scholars even believe that it was written by a different person, but that, that's not a strong argument at all. Um, the, the people that came back to Jerusalem after their return in 536, they had actually laid the foundation for the new temple, or the new foundation for the temple. They laid the foundation, but that's as far as they got. There was a lot of political pressure. There was war against the Persian king. Uh, They were anticipating that war coming in. And so, you know, the king that was going to finance the the rebuilding of the temple said, you know what, we need to use our money more wisely. We need the army. We need the chariots. We need this. We're not going to spend it on the temple. And so there was a lot of pressure to not go through with the temple. And God's people went along with that. Okay, so... Um, in that the initial enthusiasm for their return to Jerusalem was really replaced by discouragement and despondency. And again, that's that hopelessness that Greg spoke of on Sunday morning when people go through trauma and they they experience these things and it develops into this hopelessness and that's where the people are. Um, Now, I believe we can still use the second chance terminology and thought process of seeing what God does with his people here um, again it's going it's to give us a handle on, on understanding how God deals with us today as well while given God's sovereignty and there's never any doubt about the outcome of his divine kingdom plan God does draw us back to himself is anybody here Ever been in a season of sin when you were walking away from God? Hands, come on. I want to see every hand. <laughs> Just kidding. Now we do that. And what does God do? He may tap us gently on the shoulder. He may smack us upside the head. Or He may provide a swift kick in whatever place it needs to land. You know, but He gets our attention, doesn't He? And he gets our attention and he draws us back to himself. Yes, that feels like a second chance. But in God's sovereignty, th- think through that. It's really not a second chance. It's simply God working. Okay. But we're still going to use that second chance mentality a little bit tonight. Okay. Zechariah speaks of three ways that God reveals that he is giving his people a second chance, that he's drawing them back. There are three distinct divisions in this book. Chapters 1 through 6, God describes how he will give them a second chance drawing them back through his rule, R-U-L-E, that he is reigning, okay, that God is in charge. He describes how he's going to give them that chance of drawing them back through his rule. Chapters 7 and 8, God describes how he will give them a second chance through his word, through his spoken and written word. Then chapters 9 through 14, and again, this is that passage that seems to have been written much later than the first eight chapters. God describes how he will give them a second chance through his son. So we're going to see a lot of prophetic language, Messianic prophecy language in Zechariah. Now, given the time that we spent already, establishing the background and setting for the book, what I'm going to attempt to do tonight is to work through the first six chapters that we see in Zechariah to show God's second chance and His drawing of His people through His rule, and then we're going to tackle how God draws His people through His Word and He draws His people through the Son next week, God willing. Now, just as we heard over the last couple of studies on Wednesday nights from Scott in the book of Haggai, the people were back in the land of their fathers, but they were probably wondering whether God was really going to re-own them or not. Now they know that they've been, they've been called God's people. But where have they just come back from? Exile. And where were they in exile? Huh? Yeah, Babylon. How did they get to Babylon? Not by train or bus. That's not what I'm talking about. Well, who who was responsible? That's the best question. Who was responsible for them being in exile, ultimately? God was. Now, we know it was the sins of their fathers. They had turned away from God. They had forgotten God. They had turned to the world to look for answers, and again, we see that pattern throughout the history of God's people. You know, sometimes I wonder, if I'm thinking back Old Testament history, was there ever anybody that sat there and thought, am I going to get another chance? Did I blow it this time so, so badly that I'm out? Maybe they did. Um, in 2015, I can tell you I've thought that before. In 2014 and 2013, and you know, just going back, you know, there are times in my life I think, "Hallelujah! You know, God is so gracious and He's so good and He's so merciful." And I've blown it again. Will He reown me? Anybody else ever thought that? I'm not going to ask for short hands on that one, but think about that. You know, and this is where the people were. I believe they were wondering, "Is God going to really?" Re-own us. Is he going to draw us back in? For you see, these people's fathers, before they were sent to exile, they forgot the three basic conclusions that, that we get out of, out of Ecclesiastes. Chuck Swindoll, I think, did a marvelous job of, of coming up with three conclusions of the study of Ecclesiastes. And that's these three points. First of all, the lure for something different is always there. Isn't it? I mean, think about it. In your own life, the lure for something different is always there. There's something always trying to grab your attention. There's always, there's always a hook you know, that's going to pull us in one direction or the other. That lure is very, very real, and it's always there. The things of the world present themselves in flashy, bright colors, and I won't go to the other extreme of where it goes, but you know where it always goes. It always gets your attention. The second conclusion from Ecclesiastes is the lure for something different is always strong. Think about that. You know, the, the, the lure, when, when something of the world presents itself, it's never this little weak argument. It's not something that you can, on your own, just blink and it's gone. You know, that lure for something different is always strong. It's constantly tugging at us. Okay. And then the third conclusion of Ecclesiastes, according to Swindoll, if we pursue that which is different, apart from God, will be destroyed. Okay. And that's what happened to God's people. That's what led them into exile. They forgot God. They turned away from God. They looked for that something different. They pursued that which was different apart from God, and it led them into exile. So their question may well, may well have been, is God really going to give us a second chance? Yes, we're back in Jerusalem. Is he going to give us a second chance? And maybe after hearing Haggai, of, I mean, they, they really kind of got blistered if you think about it. Why haven't you rebuilt my temple? Okay. And then Zechariah comes two months later and presents the same message. And they may be sitting there going, whoa, will we really have the opportunity for God to reown us in this as his people? And it sounds like that God may just do that. Let's look in Zechariah. We're going to read the first six verses of chapter 1. Zechariah 1, verses 1 through 6. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. The prevalent imperative from God here in this passage is quite clear. You can put it in all capital letters, in bold print, underline it and make it italics if you want to. But the imperative is return to me. God very clearly tells them. This seems to imply that God is giving them a second chance. But again, knowing God's sovereignty and, and His design, He already knew what was going to happen and He knows that they're going to return, at least the remnant will. God is giving them that opportunity as He draws them back. He is reowning them as his people. And that's a real blessing when we think about it. Um, Now, the first six chapters, we're going to look at this tonight. We'll get through it one way or the other. (laughs) The first six chapters we're going to look at tonight are a series of eight different visions. Now, standing alone, and and I remember, I know I've read Zechariah at some point, it doesn't really stand out in my memory, but I do remember the visions going, huh? <laughs> no, no uh, okay. It means something, but I'm going to move on to something else that I can understand. Standing alone, standing alone, these visions can be very difficult to understand, but taken collectively and look at them at the package that God pr- provided through Zechariah, they do make sense and they, come to, they clearly make a point. Now, the eight visions and divisions are as follows. If you're taking notes, your Bible probably has these divisions in there anyway. But the first vision is the man among the myrtle trees. That's chapter 1, verses 8 through 17. We're not going to take time to read all of these visions tonight, but I want you to know what they are. The second vision is the four horns and the four craftsmen. That's chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. The third vision is a man with a measuring line. That's chapter 2. The fourth vision is the clean garments for the high priest. That's chapter 3. The fifth vision is the gold lampstand and the two olive trees. That's chapter 4. The sixth vision is the flying scroll. That's in chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. The seventh vision is the woman in the basket. That's chapter 5, verses 5 through 11. And then the eighth vision is the four chariots. And that's chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Now, Hebrew writing, like English writing, oftentimes will it'll start the story and it'll build and the climactic end of the story comes at the very end and, and, and you see the point that God is making. Um, in this particular passage and in many Hebrew writings, we see a different pattern where the climax of the story comes in the middle. It builds up, you see the climax of the story, and then there's an explanation, and a, maybe a fulfillment of, of what that climactic event was. And that's what's happening in these visions. So if you go through the visions with that understanding, it builds up, there's the climax, and then there's the, the resolution of that after, and that's what these eight visions look like. Um, Chapters three and four. This is the fourth and fifth vision, right in the middle. Okay. The vision number four and vision number five are very clear pictures and a vision of the messiah. Okay, so anytime you have any kind of of, of message or writing about the messiah, guess what the climax is? The Messiah. But here it's in the middle. okay. <clears throat> Dever points out that chapters 3 and 4, and, and, and particularly in vision 4, the clean garments are for the high priest. The high priest at that time was Joshua, was covered in the filth of the sins of his people and must be cleansed. But let's look in Zechariah 3. We're going to look at a little bit of this, uh, of this particular vision. Verses 8 through 10. Here God says through Zechariah, Hear now, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day, In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Look back at the end of verse 8. Does the end of that verse sound vaguely familiar? The branch. Where have we heard the branch? Two weeks ago, Ben preaching through Isaiah 4 spoke of the branch. Sunday, This past Sunday morning, Greg in Psalm 88 spoke of the branch. I didn't even know that was in there. You know, and I'd been studying Zechariah and the branch was there and then Greg read it. I was like, oh, wait, whoa. That was one of those, wait a minute. <laughs> made some notes. In fact, I turned another page and made some notes for that for tonight. Um, and, you know, Ben was talking about that two Sundays ago when he was talking about this was after the uglification of the people. You know, that, that, that's, a, that's a Ben McGrawism. The uglification of, and I love that word, of the people. God provided the branch, the one who can cleanse and restore. And we know who the branch is. Who is the branch? Yeah, Jesus. I mean, that's the basic good old Sunday morning, Sunday school answer. Jesus. I mean, that's, that's always the answer. Now, I've I, I got to tell you, and as I was working through this, and after... And particularly after hearing Greg's sermon Sunday morning and that the branch was in Psalm 88. And I I honestly did not realize that. Um, I, I, I was just awed, again, by God's hand and God's directing and God's orchestrating things. Even the studies that we have here at Crosspoint that two weeks ago... Ben, out of Isaiah 4, spoke about the branch. This past Sunday, Greg spoke about the branch. And now in Zechariah, that Scott had asked me six weeks ago to teach. And honestly, we've been doing this for three years. This could not have been orchestrated by a human being. You know, Scott's an intelligent young man, but he's not that smart. (laughs) You know, I love him, but he's just not that good to be able to pull together three separate studies coming from three different directions and speaking of the branch. You know, that God does that and reveals himself that way to, to us just... I mean, I've, you know, I've got chills just thinking about that. And that God does that. Why? Because he loves us and he wants to reveal himself to us. And... You know, it's kind of like the old saying, if that doesn't light your fire, your wood's wet. You know, to, to, to see things like that, and, and I'm, I'm reasonably sure that each one of us could have a testimony of how we see God putting things together that seem seemingly so disconnected and then, boom, it's just right there. You know, and God does that again and again and again and again. So here... In chapter 3, the fourth vision, God is revealing his plan to bring his servant, the branch, that is Jesus Christ, for only Jesus could accomplish what is said in verses 9 and 10. Look again at verse 9 and 10. For behold on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone and with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. What single day is God referring to in this passage? In the single day, God will remove the iniquity of this land. What single day was that? Huh? Yeah. Very clearly, the crucifixion. In that single day, in that moment, God removed the iniquity of his people. That's the only way that could have happened. That's the only way it did happen. Now, we see Messianic language throughout this passage and I promise you, we could spend hours digging into this. I don't have time to do that. Okay, so let me challenge you. Spend some time Digging through this passage and the Messianic language in this writing through of God through Zechariah and look at, for example, a single stone with seven eyes. That's Messianic language. Go find out where that is. Okay, That he will engrave its inscription. There are several places it came to mind that I thought about. Look that up. Dig, dig through that. See what that is. When he says, I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. We've already spoken, that's that's the crucifixion. Every one of you, he says, will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. It's Messianic language. And what happens with us who are called by God, saved by Jesus Christ, what do we do? We want everybody to come under that. We're excited about that and we share that with people. Why? Because we want them to know our Jesus. And all of the, I mean, that Messianic language, just it's, it's throughout this book, and you're going to see that even more next week. Rich stuff. I mean, just absolutely phenomenal. I just love it. Now, the fifth vision pictures two individuals standing. These two individuals represent the high priest who can cleanse the sin of the people, and the king who only can accomplish the purposes of God. Okay, now think back, hadn't been that long ago, but think back in our study of Hebrews. What high priest is there that can cleanse the sins of the people? Yeah, Jesus. Alex looked up me and he's like, Jesus. <laughs> he thought he knew the answer. Yeah, the, the better high priest. We see through Hebrews that Jesus is the better high priest. He's, even stronger language, the only high priest, the perfect high priest. And that's who Jesus is. So, again, we see messianic language here. And what king can accomplish the purposes of God perfectly? Jesus, the king of kings, the lord of lords. And so, again, the two figures... With the lampstand, it's it's Jesus is the high priest. Jesus is the king. Now, Deborah then directs our attention to the remainder of the visions. Again, visions four and five point to the Messiah. That's the climax of the story. But we need to get there from the beginning and go somewhere with the end. And and God does this so sweetly. Um, Visions one and eight. The beginning vision and the end vision reveal the four horses going through the earth proclaiming peace. In the first vision, the horses horses are going through proclaiming the peace of the people before God judges the nations. Okay, so there is peace before God judges the nations. The eighth vision speaks of the peace that exists following the coming of the Messiah. It's the peace that we live in, that we will live in for all eternity. Okay. Visions two and three together show God winning victories over His people's enemies while protecting His people who lived among them. Right, so think about this. Vision one is the horses going through and proclaiming peace in the nations before God passed judgment on the nations. He passed judgment on the nations, there's no longer peace. And then visions two and three talk about God going through and destroying the enemies of his people and the enemies that the people lived among. In exile and even... After exile, when they were and the world is just around. Now, vision six and seven, when oh four and five, were about the Messiah. Vision six and seven show God purging His people of their sin. So, vision one is the peace prior to God bringing down His judgment on the nations. Visions two and three are are the, the His people's enemies being. Destroyed, conquered by God. Vision four and five is the Messiah. Vision six and seven is God cleansing his people of their sin. And then vision eight is the peace that we live in under Christ. Under our Messiah. Under our perfect high priest. Under the King of Kings. You see, if we look at visions two and three, God destroying the enemies of the people, and six and seven, God cleansing the people and purging the people of their sin, Altogether, together, these four visions you know, picture the defeat of all opposition to God's rule. The enemies will oppose God's rule. Our sin opposes God's rule in our own lives. God says, you know what? I'm going to take care of all of that. And that's what he shows in these, in these four visions. Both external world powers and internal opposition, sin of the people. God takes care of that. Destroys the enemy and he purges the sin. So in short, the eight visions present a picture of the whole world at peace under the rule of God's appointed high priest and king, that is Jesus Christ. So you see, God has drawn his people back through his rule. Him being sovereign. The God who spoke creation into existence. And he's using the picture of a second chance, giving his people a second chance to change through his rule. He is giving us a second chance through his rule over all by appointing a great high priest, the better high priest and king, Jesus Christ, and through the power of the Holy Spirit drawing us to him. Now, it really never occurred to me before this time of study that God reveals himself in this minor prophet in a way that we have heard over and over and over again from the preaching and teaching here at Point. And it's that statement that God is the active agent in our salvation. God is the active agent in everything that exists. God is the active agent in everything that happens in his kingdom. And we see that in Zechariah. Consider this. God never told Zechariah to go and do this or go and do that. He didn't tell Zechariah, go tell the people, go and do this, go and do that. Instead, he told Zechariah, Know this. Or see this. And Zechariah was even asked, as you read through the visions, do you see this? Are you seeing this? See this, know this. He wasn't supposed to go and do things. And literally beyond that, God tells his people to be still before the Lord. Look in Zechariah 2.13. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord. For he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Now, in wrapping this up a little bit tonight, hopefully in a tidy package. I don't know. Hope, hopefully it is. But I want to read a passage from Deborah's book that just absolutely jumped out. And it summarizes God's rule so clearly yeah, I could have rewritten and paraphrased it and it would have kind of said the same thing, but I might as well just give Dever credit for writing it. So I'm just going to do that. So let me just read this. He says, We are not lectured to by God about what we should be doing or not doing. Not a bunch of rules or hoops to jump through. No. We are shown what God is going to do. He will rule the world. He will judge his people's enemies. He will dwell with his people and protect them. He will send the Messiah and cleanse the guilt of his people. He will purge and purify his people, separating them from their own evils and their own sin. That shows us the comprehensive nature of God's lordship. It's God doing over and over and over and over and over again. God is the active agent in our lives. Now, as in the time of Zechariah, our hope is not in ourselves. And I have to remind myself of that a lot. You know, I grew up with a dad that was pretty handy. My, by the way, my oldest sister, I got that on tape now, is here. This is Jan. Okay, My oldest sister. She's really old. No. <laughs> we love each other. We really do. Um, but, but we grew up with a dad that was really handy. If something needed to be fixed, he would typically would fix it. He'd at least try it. And then if he couldn't do it, then he'd call somebody else, but he'd rather do it himself. You know, and I grew up under that example and, and following him around the backyard and out in the shop and doing stuff. And, and I learned to do a lot of stuff. Okay? I, just, I just learned. And, and I learned that same work ethic from, from Daddy that if I don't know how to do it, I can try it. You know, and a lot of times I can do it. I'm sitting over here looking at Clay. Clay's one of those guys too. You know, he, if the carburetor's messed up, he'll tear it apart. If he can't fix it, he'll go get it. So, you know, so But he usually can fix it anyway. You know, there's a lot of people around like that. And the tendency for me, I'm not going to talk for Clay. Clay can address him himself, this himself. But the tendency for me, if I'm not real careful, is to be real self-sufficient. It's a real hard struggle for me at times. I can, I can do it. And most of the time I do. And then God reminds me, <laughs> He's the active agent. It's only through Him that I'm able to do anything. It's only through Him I'm able to, say it again, do anything. It doesn't matter what it is. God is the active agent. And we see that through Zechariah, where God says, Be still. This is what I'm going to do. Because in reality, my self-sufficiency and the things that I can do on my own mean absolutely nothing for eternity. Because guess what, folks? I can't do anything about that. Not one thing I can do, whether I can build a fence or do leather work or play the guitar, it doesn't matter what I can do that doesn't doesn't earn me a place in eternity. It is only through God's working that that happens. We must turn to God as the only source for hope, not in ourselves. It's in an eternal, all-powerful God who spoke creation into existence. You know what? That's great news. Because if I'm going to depend on anyone, (laughs) honestly, I'd rather depend on someone who could do something like speaking creation into existence rather than me that fumbles and falls and gets tired and the retaining wall has a bow in it and I don't care because I'm not going to go back and redo it. (laughs) It's You know, and it's hopefully hidden so that nobody ever sees it, but, you know, our hope has to be in God. And that is great news. But this is why we need to continually dig into God's Word consistently, daily. Sometimes minute by minute. Sometimes it's only a minute at a time, but that's an important minute. Okay, hopefully it's longer than that. It needs to be longer than that. I'm talking to myself here. And even when it's eight visions found in... Yeah, the longest minor prophet, but still a minor prophet. That, as you look at those visions, you're like, really? A woman in a basket? What? You know, by themselves, they don't seem much. But when you take them collectively and you see what God is doing, we see that everything in God's word, everything spoken is all true and centered on God. And if we want to have any hope in what appears to be hopeless circumstances, we must turn to this God who is the only source for hope. And that's the good news. That's the good news that we have in Zechariah. It's only through God that we can have that. Now, what is our part in all of this? We know that God's going to do all these things. He said what He's going to do. He tells us to be still But what was the imperative we started with? What was God's imperative to his people? Return to me. So what is our part in Greenville, Texas in 2015? Return to God. That's what our part is. God does the rest. And that's good news. Again, let me close with Zechariah 1.3. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your revealed word. Father, thank you for loving us in such a way that you would send your son to provide a way for redemption to a hard-headed, stiff-necked, hard-hearted people. and Through the power of the Holy Spirit, our hearts are prepared. And that fertile soil is there for the seed that's planted of the gospel to grow and produce. Father, that's our story, that's who we are, but we are that because of you. Father, you are the active agent in that. Father, I thank you for the opportunity we have to dig into your word. And again, I thank you, Holy Spirit, for leading us into the truth of the word, so that we can have a bearing, we can have an understanding, we can have a hook to hang something on for our lives. And not just our lives, but the lives that we come in contact with tomorrow, Friday and Saturday and next Tuesday and next Thursday and six months from now. When someone comes in our pathway who is despondent and despairing because of their trauma. and We can listen, we can talk, we can pray with them, we can encourage them to look to you. because you are the active agent and you are the only hope that we have in this world. Father, I thank you for those who are here tonight. I pray a very special blessing on each one here, each family unit in our our fellowship. Father, for any guests that are here, Father, I pray a very rich blessing on their lives as well. Father, it's my prayer that you will be honored and glorified and that we give you praise for who you are as well as for what you do. And it's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. All right. Y'all dismissed.